Hey, I'm Christopher Schiefling. Thank you so much for joining me for Auscultation, a podcast in search of a humanities-based practice of medicine. Today, we're listening to The Sick Rose, a poem by the 18th century poet, painter, and visionary, William Blake. The Sick Rose is a short poem, so listen up, or you might miss it. The Sick Rose by William Blake Oh, Rose, thou art sick. The invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. And just in case you blinked, let's hear that again. The Sick Rose by William Blake Oh, Rose, thou art sick. The invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Some thoughts on brevity. Both the brilliance and the challenge of this poem come from its pregnant brevity. Somehow, with only two sentences, eight lines, and 34 words, it creates a doorway into a world of possibilities. What are we to make of Rose and the Worm? Are they an allegory of the soul in sin? Of a life cut short by illness? Of a world spoiled by humans? of joy crippled by anxiety, of innocence corrupted by experience. Incredibly, these two short stanzas have plenty of room to explore all of these interpretations and more. I, though, am particularly interested in how it develops the tragedy of a girl dying too soon. While the poem has always left me with a strong impression of youth, A closer read of the text shows that there is no direct mention of this. The sense of youth hinges mostly on the word rose. Rose is capitalized, which opens the potential for the narrator to be talking to a particular person, and the floral connotations of the name carries in an air of spring, beauty, and transience. Similarly, rose's bed of crimson joy brings a strong sense of vitality, while only alluding to juvenescence. With only these handful of words, Blake manages to conjure a full-bodied feeling of youth, which in fact is based only on inference. This is stunning. What's more, the discovery 
of his magic adds yet another layer to this sense of fleeting youth that hardly has a foot on the ground. The raw visual aspect of the poem also contributes to this foreshortening. The length of the poem, hardly two inches, is petite. Similarly, the line of crimson joy is the shortest of the whole poem with only four syllables compared to five to six syllables of all the other lines. With this clever use of enjambment, Rose's joy is literally cut short. This episode is brought to you by NCAPS. When a thoughtful workup is negative, the patient is improving, and up-to-date suggests 15 more tests, including ceruloplasma levels, there is NCAPS, the only prescription shown to reduce ambiguity intolerance and increase ego dissolution. NCAPS, live the questions. Some thoughts on breaking bad news. During Blake's day, three out of every ten children died in the UK. Almost mirroring this statistic, two of his seven siblings died in infancy. And he published The Sick Rose several years after being the primary caretaker of his younger brother as he died early from illness. Child mortality in the UK has now shrunk to less than half a percent. And the saying, no parent should have to bury a child, can almost seem true. Maybe even natural. But of course, this is yet one more of the many ways that Western culture tries to deny death and offers very little for the dying and their loved ones. Despite the best of intentions, the saying, no parent should have to bury a child, far from offering support, actually denies their experience. It leaves suffering parents alone in their grief, while the would-be comforter can retreat back to the social denial of death. With such deep-rooted aversion to facing death, telling patients and their loved ones that they are dying is daunting. However, clear communication about prognosis is crucial for helping people process and prioritize the time remaining. At the heart of this poem is the delivery of a bad diagnosis. The narrator essentially tells Rose two things. She is sick and she is dying. These direct statements book in the poem, starting with, Oh, Rose, thou art sick. And closing with, does thy life destroy? But why does the narrator even need to tell Rose she is sick? Is it because the worm is invisible? Or that she is too young to know what sickness is? Is she in denial? Or does she know but needs to hear it out loud? Or could this possibly be a warning shot? A warning shot is an essential communication technique for delivering bad news. It is an initial phrase that is used to prepare patients that bad news is coming. It can be something as simple as, unfortunately, I have some hard news to share, or I wish we had gotten different results. The keys to the warning shot are that it is empathetic and that it leaves a pause to watch for how patients react. 
This is exactly what Blake does. O oh, Rose, thou art sick. The O opens with great feeling, and the full stop of a period literally opens up a brief silence. The narrator then goes on to deliver the bad news, explaining the diagnosis and finishing with its fatal prognosis. As with the warning shot, clinicians should always pause after breaking that bad news. Additionally, the news should also be as concise as possible, ideally a sentence. Again, this is exactly what the narrator does. A single sentence describes the worm and how it does thy life destroy. This ending leaves us in a blank space anticipating Rose's reaction as well as our own. In another life, it seems, Blake could have been a palliative care clinician. Apropos of nothing, here is a silly bonus poem. A zit arose inside my nose. I can't quite see its blooming petal, but oh, I feel its nasty metal. Some thoughts on the invisible worm. The antagonist of the poem is fascinating. The sick rose bypasses the flower's usual suspects, thorns, and thyme, in favor of the invisible worm. While its phallic nature is certainly ripe for interpretation, in my opinion, at least, looking past the Freudian analysis actually yields a richer harvest. There are many perplexing details about the worm. Why is it invisible? Why is it flying rather than burrowing? Why is it out in a storm? In the 1700s, when this poem was published, germ theory was still a century away, and the reigning explanation for disease was miasma theory. According to this belief, illness came from breathing in polluted air arising from rotting organic material. It could also come from worms living in the ulcers of people with the plague. It was thought to be detected by its foul odor rather than its sight. However, it was often depicted metaphorically as a black cloud, and it was also called night air. This long-lived theory was espoused by Hippocrates back in the 14th century BCE and endured until the 1800s. In light of miasma theory, the worm can easily be seen as a disease, which explains why it's invisible, why it flies in the night, and why it comes in a storm. Additionally, typically the bed is seen as both a flower bed as well as a bed of passion. Under the lens of illness, though, it transforms into a sickbed, and at the end, a final metamorphosis into a deathbed looms. In sickness, the bed is a poor prognostic sign. It brings fatigue rather than rest, sour medicine rather than warm milk, fever dreams rather than daydreams. Similarly, in the context of disease, crimson joy becomes a form of lifeblood. It is a pulsation of color that succumbs to the complete absence of color of the worm, which is nocturnal, comes in a storm, and bears a dark love. 
The red heartbeats that come from hearing rose and crimson joy are overwhelmed by the blackness of disease and the foreshadow of death. Another curious feature of the worm is that it is its love that destroys Rose's life. Hunger, greed, or even desire might seem more fitting for this blight, but love draws attention to the intimacy of illness. You breathe it into your chest, and from the inside, it takes a hold of your body in a tight embrace. After much ominous barking about the worm, the last line reveals its bite. It does thy life destroy. This can be read as ending Rose's life, or that it is ruining her life, or both. In other words, it inflicts both morbidity and mortality. Ending with destroy leaves the impression that the worm is here to stay, there are no treatments, and the narrator's grim prognosis is inevitable. So the poem drops us into a space empty of any remedy. Western medicine, it seems, abhors this vacuum of prescriptions and procedures and runs from it at all cost. The sick rose, however, deliberately throws us into this hole and pulls out the rope. How does it feel? Down here in the dark, alone with suffering, how does it feel? Scary, depressing, hopeless, guilt-ridden. In times, or rather places like this, Dr. Edward Trudeau reminds us to cure sometimes, relieve often, and comfort always. Sitting in this hole, I think of all the ways to comfort Rose. With open ears and open hands, the emptiness can take on a new shape. The Sick Rose by William Blake Oh, Rose, thou art sick The invisible worm that flies In the night, in the howling storm Has found out thy bed of crimson joy And his dark, secret love Does thy life destroy Sick Rose was published in 1794 in Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. It is now part of public domain.